Welcome to this episode of the Pop Trash Podcast. Hold on a minute. <laughs> I'm looking up something in my Merriam-Webster dictionary. Not your Funkin' Wagnalls? <laughs> well, Mike, that should make for an interesting episode reading from the dictionary. I mean, it could be worse. I could be reading from the phone book. Oh, I do miss the yellow pages. No, but here it is. I'm looking up the definition of hag. What did you just call me? <laughs> <laughs> Get this, hag dates back to 1662, and it's a Middle English word for an ugly, slatternly, or evil-looking old woman. I have two thoughts. One, we don't use the word slatternly enough these days. And two, who'd have thought the word hag is nearly 400 years old? I know, just like your fashion taste. Oh, <laughs> I should have seen that coming. <laughs> well, what's not 400 years old are movies that fit into that genre that's both lovingly and perhaps somewhat controversially known as hagsploitation. Or psycho bitty. I don't know, that feels even worse. Well, the only alternative is Grand Dame Guignon. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely worse. Or else your French just really stinks. Well, I've never had complaints about my French before. <laughs> <laughs> Mon dieu! <laughs> well, today we're looking at some unexpected and shocking career performances from a few slatternly ladies and one from Salminio. <laughs> Ooh, was he slatternly? He was scorching. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin. So slatternly, huh? I don't even, What what is the definition of slatternly? <laughs> well, let me look it up in the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's an ad. Slatternly women wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't Betty Davis put an ad like when she was of a certain age and she wasn't getting hired? She placed that ad, I think in Variety, that was like experienced actress wanted. And it was like a whole send up of trying to get a job at her age. Well, I should have done that last year when I was looking. I'm lucky though. I looked 47 at 25, but I'm going to look 47 at 85 too. Oh, I wish I ever looked 47. I always looked 85. <laughs> <laughs> well, officially, welcome to the Pop Trash Podcast. I'm Eric Griggs. And I'm Mike Jones. Each episode, we take a pop topic and trash talk it, but with love, of course. And love, well, when a man loves a woman... <laughs> It can sometimes turn into a bloody, disastrous, murderous mess. Oh boy, we've got some murders today to talk about. So we're going to unpack a little bit about the hagsploitation genre or psychobitty or whatever you'd like to call it. Mike, how would you describe hag horror? I basically think hagsploitation is an elder actress, let's say 55 plus. And I know that that doesn't make them old, but I mean, you know, more old than your, you, what you'd expect, I think, from like a, a blockbuster film or something like that. Off the beaten path of their career into a role where they're going to play some kind of campy, murderous assassin or burglar or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever thing you're thinking that is a bad thing, right? Like that to me is exploitation. So the Hamburglar would qualify. <laughs> uh, I don't know the Hamburglar's gender. <laughs> I don't even think the Hamburglar knows for sure. <laughs> sure, let's make the Hamburglar a <laughs> I would agree with your um, estimation of, uh, of how you describe things. Yes, it's like when you're no longer deemed a leading lady, you're playing moms, um, elderly women, 
a formerly glamorous woman who's become unstable, the grotesquerie of aging, which I think is something that a lot of detractors think this is a bad genre, but I think it's, it taps into a fear we all have. I don't want to age. I hate aging. It really sucks. And I look in the mirror and it's exploitation every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're right about that. I mean, I don't have a fear of aging. I have a separate fear, which is that time moves by too fast, which is, I guess, sort of tied to aging, but like, I'm worried about getting older, but the number of people who worry about getting older, like every day on social media, you'll find some millennial who's like, Oh my gosh, did you know the spice girls as wannabe is, was released closer to the moon landing than to today. <laughs> and I just want to be like, yeah, that's how time works. <laughs> <laughs> right. I also want to say like, I think the genre gets a bad rap for being like B movies or kind of it's seen as beneath these actresses for like their former glamour, their former leading roles. And I don't really see it that way. I think there's more beneath the surface that it, it is really actually once again, after their star has waned a little bit, giving them the chance to shine brightly again with a villain role or a murderous role that is just like, they get to chew the scenery and like, that for an actor is probably so much better than playing like mama sitting quietly in the corner as the other younger actors like run the show, right? Do you really say it mama? Mama, mama, <laughs> we need to bring in more wood for the fire. <laughs> but for me, it's like I think of hag exploitation films. And the first one that comes to mind is whatever happened to baby Jane. Yeah. I mean, that's the prototype. You could say Sunset Boulevard had the seeds of it, but where it really began was baby Jane. Well, and what's funny about that is everything you said is true, right? They're seen as sort of B movies or camp or less than or beneath mm -hmm. a level of quality. But what's really interesting to me about whatever happened to baby Jane is that it was really beloved. Eddie Davis got nominated for an Oscar. Joan Crawford didn't. That's the whole like part of their whole feud. It's so the genre at least started from a pedestal of respect. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens as the years move on, all the sexism that's wrapped up in Hollywood and the ageism that's wrapped up in Hollywood, sure. right? Like it trails these types of movies and just it's impossible to shake that baggage that just follows these around. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because at the time they were having trouble greenlighting this. They, they were not seen as stars. And then all of a sudden it becomes a hit, right? And now, oh, these older actresses are valuable. They're valuable properties. So what you're saying is like later years, it just becomes a commodification. Hitting these beats about this haggard woman who is crazy, right? Right, totally. Well, so we're not talking about whatever happened to Baby Jane today, right? Everybody has talked about that till they're blue in the face. Other sort of movies in this genre that folks know, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Oh, I love it. It's great, but we're not going to talk about it today, right? Because it's kind of one of those ones that's also been talked about to death. But we are talking about three movies today. They all kind of fit into that exploitation genre. First up, Straight Jacket. Then we're going to jump to Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice. And then we're going to end on another question. Who killed Teddy Bear? <laughs> Why are they all questions? Do you ever wonder that? No. Why are exploitation movies questions?
All right, we're starting off with a straight jacket, and we won't keep you in a bind any longer. Oh, <laughs> yes, I'm uh, I'm all tied up waiting to hear this one. Shut up. <laughs> oh, not one of your best, but I'll take it. Eric, what is straight jacket about? Well, this is about uh, Joan Crawford, who has been let out after a 20-year stint in an insane asylum Ooh. following her double murder of her husband and his lover. She kills them with an axe and the mother is now reunited with her daughter and the beheadings start happening again. When I put those clothes on, something happens to me. Something frightening. Joan Crawford in a shattering screen portrayal. A frantic woman pressured by straitjacket tension. Sinister. <gasps> Frightening. Ingeniously designed to shock and startle. Straitjacket may go beyond the limits of your ability to endure suspense. Mother! Oh, my God! I do watch this movie regularly, and it's awesome. It's one of those great campy pleasures. If you ever have the chance to see this in a movie theater with a bunch of people, preferably people who've never seen it, uh, you're going to just thoroughly enjoy the experience. There's just so much camp in this, and it is suspenseful, and it's very well shot. It has some Hitchcockian uh, vibes to it. It has gimmicks, over-the-top acting, uh, and it has Joan Crawford in some memorable scenes and scenery chewing that just make it a real pleasure to watch. I really think Joan's doing a bang-up job of this nervous, anxious re-entry into society after all those years of being locked up and then suddenly being triggered and going off the deep end. Because in most people's minds, Joan Crawford is operating at that like one intense level. But here, she kind of really pulls it back and there are moments where it just goes off the rails. Leave me alone! You let go of me! Listen to me! But I think it's the way that she toggles between those two that really makes this work. Yeah, I really agree with that. Obviously, I know she is off the rails throughout what will be like the next 10 years of her life in so many ways. Here, you kind of get a, a, a I don't want to say like a last glimpse of her brilliance because I think she did some stuff after this that's still good. But like, to me, this is like sort of, at the top of her game, um, riding high off of whatever happened to baby Jane. And it's still just very good. And I don't know how you could watch this movie today and just not relish every second of Joan Crawford on screen. This goes back to what I was saying. Because of Baby Jane's success, she was popular again. So it kind of dispels that older actresses are debasing themselves for these roles. And she had a percentage in this, I think 15% of the box office take, which is why she kind of went on tour with William Castle and did those theater appearances, dressed up in the gown and just coming down the aisle, swinging the axe. And William Castle had cardboard fake bloodied axes for the audience members. I mean, it's just fun. This movie is fun all around. You can tell she's enjoying herself, but Joan's a pro and she's really treating this like any other elevated material she would be doing. Yeah. Some of the special effects or the practical effects of the beheadings and, and other things are like, they're hokey and they're old, um, but that's part of the charm. I mean, that's part of the kind of low rent, low budget, 
William Castle production. The other thing I love about this is a little fun trivia of this movie, which a lot, again, this isn't going to be news for a lot of people who've seen this, but for those who haven't, there's actually a really fun, speaking of gimmicks, the Columbia Pictures lady. Oh, yes. And this was the very first time I had ever seen it because I think I probably just turned it off at the very end of the movie. So the Columbia Pictures like mascot is what this woman, this woman holding a torch, uh, but for straitjacket, they behead her, uh, or decapitate her, uh, and have her bloody head just right around the ground. <laughs> I, I love it. I just love it. difficult as you think not very perceptive of you to minimize the courage that it takes to kill why it's just nerve with a dash of cruelty whatever happened to aunt alice where is she what a fraud you are i don't care what you believe geraldine page is mrs maribel ruth gordon is mrs dimmock one of them is a sweet little old lady the other is a homicidal maniac. One of them is Aunt Alice. Was Aunt Alice the killer or the victim? Or both? Whatever happened to Aunt Alice is more terrifying than what happened to baby Jane. Mike, whatever happened to Aunt Alice, wrong answers only. Of course, everyone knows that Alice moves to the Arizona desert and becomes a waitress at Mel's Diner. (laughs) I would have also accepted from you, she died from indigestion from unlimited soup, salad, and breadsticks at the Olive Garden. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's my obituary. (laughs) Well, if you want to know whatever happened to Aunt Alice, here's the movie synopsis. Widowed Miss Claire Marable has apparently been left destitute by her dead husband, and to stay into the life that she's been accustomed, she begins hiring elderly female live-in companions and housekeepers, conning them out of their money and burying them in her garden after she's murdered them. I, I did like the tagline, a horrific tale with grave consequences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and another one, you'll love all these puns of the promotional materials. You could say she'd kill to keep her secrets buried. <laughs> and this is not a pun, but I enjoyed the rhyme. What makes her garden grow? Wouldn't you like to know? (laughs) So they were really going with like the mystery of murder here, I think. So what did you think of this movie, Mike? Did you like it? No. (laughs) Oh, no, you come on. I I like 25 minutes of this movie, I think. Oh, stop. No, it's true. I really, there are only a handful of scenes that really caught my attention and wowed me. This, I think, it's not, it's not bad. It will keep your interest, but... It's a little meandering and slow in some parts. Geraldine Page, who is the lead actress in this movie, and I guess our unexpected performer, 
just how she basically deposes of these bodies is is where it really starts to kind of pick up and then the the tension that broils with kind of a next door neighbor well this was produced by robert aldrich director of baby jane and hush hush sweet charlotte he didn't direct this one uh but produced it and it kind of is a bit of a loose trilogy of old ladies going off the rails if you figure those three in order yes although can we take a second to just note that geraldine page was 43 years old when she made this i know i mean in her defense, I can understand when my bank account is low, it can cause premature lines and wrinkles. <laughs> I've gotten to look a little bit haggard. <laughs> it goes back to what we've talked about on previous podcasts. Did people just look older back then? I mean, she's made to look considerably older in this. I mean, she looks 50s, late 50s, early 60s and at, at the youngest. And yeah, when I when I read that she was younger than I am right now when she made this, I was like, oh boy, we're all doomed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew Geraldine Page from, she's the voice of Madame Medusa from The Rescuers. So she's clearly an amazing villain. Ooh. She actually had a very long career and was well-respected as an actress. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, when she won her Oscar, F. Murray Abraham, who Amadeus, right, like called her, this is a direct quote, the greatest actress in the English language. Wow. Well, we definitely have to talk about one housekeeper that she was locked in Mortal Kombat with here, played by Ruth Gordon. The character's name was Mrs. Dimmick, and she has secrets of her own. I love Ruth Gordon. I don't know what it is about her, but I'm just wrapped attention whenever she's on the screen. Truthfully, I don't think I've ever seen anything with Ruth Gordon in it. Isn't she in Rosemary's Baby? Oh, yeah. Harold and Maude, her Subaru Brat commercial. The new Subaru Brat has sleek aerodynamic lines. Just tell them it's good looking. Front and on-demand four-wheel drive. Say it can climb. A halo twin roof. It's a window. And it's engineered to withstand the elements. That means it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she shows up and, of course, all of the requisite 70s things that I watched, like episode, she was a villain on Columbo, <laughs> you know, she pops up and all of those things. So that's probably why I love her. Do you have any thoughts on why even particularly gay men kind of flock to and revere a Joan Crawford a Geraldine Page, Ruth Gordon, these these older women who are really chewing up the scenery. What What is it? What's the appeal there? You're asking me, a fan of Glenn Close, if I have any thoughts <laughs> on gay men who obsess over yeah, the yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us what that's like. Welcome to your TED Talk on getting close to Glenn Close. <laughs> For all intents and purposes, like Glenn Close today is the equivalent of Ruth Gordon in 1967, mm -hmm. right? Sure. 65, 69. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, I think a part of it is, you know, you identify with characters or figures that were present in your childhood that have stayed with you throughout your adulthood. So there's some level of nostalgia. I think some of it could also be like rooting for the underdog a little bit um, or connection to the outsider a little bit. Uh, and so I think there's there's pieces of that. Mm. You connect with the person that that feels like they share part of your story, whether that's the outsider, whether that's the the misunderstood, whether it's the person on a mission, whether it's the scorned, whatever it is, right? Like it's 
it's like you find those kinds of things and you latch onto them. I mean, imagine if there was social media back in 1969, like the, the Ruth Gordon fan club would be, you know, lined up down the block. <laughs> I mean, the scene between Ruth Gordon and Geraldine Page when like, again, not to give it away because it's really quite special, but the fight scene is incredibly good. And then let's just say one of them doesn't end up alive. <laughs> and the way that that happens is very, like, very good. Very good cinema. That part of this movie I could watch over and over again. It was delicious. I loved it. I was riveted. I loved it all the way down to Chloe the dog, who, <laughs> I mean, I brilliant, smells her dead owner's body under the tree and is trying to dig it up and causing Mrs. Marable heart palpitations that this dog is going to rat her out. She's not only locked in combat with Ruth Gordon, she's got to take care of Chloe the dog. If there's one thing I've learned as a pug owner in New York City, you can never get rid of a dog that smells a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you didn't like it, Mike, this was number one at the box office its opening week. So again, the longevity and the interest of the public for these types of older women chewing the scenery and murderous rampages was still um, something that audiences wanted to see in 1969. Well, and I should clarify, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just that I think it's slower than whatever happened to Baby Jane and Hush Hush Sweet Scarlet. It's slower than Straight Jacket. It just moves a little bit slower. And like, for what it's worth, this movie largely takes place in Tucson, Arizona, and the Arizona desert and landscape is really like quite the supporting player here. And it's just not lush to look at, right? Although it's fascinating that she's able to grow such a wonderful garden in the desert. It's true. It's <laughs> true. Let's move on to our next film question, 1965's Who Killed Teddy Bear? I did break a Teddy Ruxpin in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play with you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, the plot of this one uh, centers around Nora, a DJ at the local discotheque, and she's getting harassing phone calls. The movie carries you on a journey where you think the sexual caller is one person, but it takes a real sharp turn and you realize, no, it's a different person. The movie doesn't make it obvious who it is until you're, you're midway through with the journey. We must say, I guess, at the outset of this, that it is a parade of degeneracy. This is the type of movie that if your parents get nervous when you tell them you're going to the big city, <laughs> this is why. Yeah, I mean, it's just a laundry list. Obscene phone calls, voyeurism, adult bookstores, porn theaters, assault, lesbian character, masturbation, abuse. It's a scandalous equal opportunity offender of everyone's sensibilities, which is kind of, you know... Take your pick of what you want to be offended by in this movie. But it does feel like cutting edge for the 60s, even for like an exploitation movie of the 60s, I thought. Yeah, I mean, for the mid 60s, for sure. This is 1965, but it still has a reputation. I mean, most of the critics called this thing sleazy and didn't really care for it. Film critic Leonard Malton, he gave this one and a half stars and called it sleazy and a waste of talent, which <laughs> coincidentally is the title of my forthcoming autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's better than a B movie. I, this is gonna be a terrible comparison. It's like this feels like the 1965 version of Madonna's Body of Evidence. I could get on board with that. Yeah. Uh huh. You know, Star does something salacious and the salaciousness of it ends up being almost bigger than the star, if that makes sense. Right. And so that's why um, I put this on the list of things to talk about in a exploitation episode. As you mentioned at the outset, it's typically women or older women reviving their careers. And I thought this would be a great opportunity with Sal Minio because, you know, he had a music career when he was younger, a heartthrob. Uh, he's, you know, Plato in Rebel Without a Cause, that innocent character. And he really takes a left turn here. To, to see Sal Minio in this role, I think was shocking to a lot of people. Yeah, I could totally see that. It, I mean, again, this movie is heavy stuff. They make Sal Minio into a brutal character, but his past is also brutal. But even though it's like got that sleaze and sort of brutality to it, it it doesn't feel like like I didn't feel dirty after I watched this. Right. It's definitely cinema. The magic of the pictures. <laughs> but I mean, can we can we talk about supporting characters uh, or other characters in the film, especially? legendary Elaine Stritch. Yeah, she's very interesting to see here because the Elaine Stritch I know is the 30 Rock, what she did over the last like sort of 20 years on Broadway, you know, the the Ellen Burstyn show where she played Ellen Burstyn's mother in the, in the 80s. But she was kind of at, in that era. Yeah, always old. But here she's older, but she's sexy. I was really fascinated watching so much so that like when she first came on screen, I was like, wait, that's not, is that Elaine? That's Elaine Stritch. Right. Uh, yeah. And I love that. And to be honest with you, like by far my favorite part of the film is her scenes. Look, doll baby. I think there's something the matter with you. I think you're sick. I think those telephone voices of yours, maybe they don't exist. I went out of my way to be nice to you. In a recent Salminio biography, She's quoted as saying, I was a lesbian owner of a disco who fell in love with Juliet Prowse and got strangled on 93rd Street and East Avenue with a silk stocking by Sal Minio. Jesus, who's not going to play that part? <laughs> Which is like so <laughs> Elaine Stritch. And it's like, yeah, I want to watch that movie too. <laughs> Juliet Prowse, she's gorgeous in this. And Sal Minio's tiny shirt should have won an Oscar for this role. The outfits that they put him in are just skin tight. This was the first time in American film that a man was shown wearing jockey briefs. Oh, well, that hits you right at the start of the movie. Yeah. Basically the opening scene. And I I also found that kind of very much like it's almost sexier than a 1990s Abercrombie and Fitch cattle. Right. Like it's got yeah, a level yeah. of like, ooh, that's provocative for this to be dated in the 60s. And seeing and seeing like New York and Times Square when it was very seedy before it got kind of cleaned up by Giuliani and a different portrayal of 60s than the general 60s nostalgia of free love and everything is wonderful and people are operating on this other wavelength. You're right. It's like the seedy underbelly of New York and the murderous 
depravity of New York. It's so different. I that's that's why I think there's a lot to appreciate and love about this movie. At the same time, it's so off-putting. So I find it so fascinating. There's a couple other things. The music is stellar. So the opening scene has great music. The the several scenes throughout the movie just really incredible music. And you know, the lead character is a DJ at a discotheque. So you'd expect the music to be hopping and it really is. Oh, most definitely. There's a surprise cameo or surprise appearance of an actor. You probably I'm guessing you don't know who this is. I d- I actually don't. So he plays in the in again one of the early scenes. There's there's a guy thrown out of the discotheque for being kind of gross. Oh, okay. And the bouncer tosses him out, uh-huh. and they get in a fight. But the bouncer can't talk. He's kind of I don't know if he's it's like mute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that bouncer is played by Danny Travanti, otherwise known as Daniel Travanti. You have no idea who he is, do you? No, but now I, the name is familiar, and his face is familiar. I can picture him older. Well, Daniel Travanti won two Emmys for being the lead actor in one of my favorite 80s TV shows. Is it Hill Street Blues? It is Hill Street Blues, yes. Okay, yeah, now I picture him immediately in my mind. Wow, oh, well, good find for you, huh? Oh, so good. I had to listen to the Hill Street Blues theme song. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching Salminio's body, and you were like, Daniel Travanti? (laughs) (laughs) He's in it for all of six seconds, and I'm all I can think of. Obviously, I know who Sal Minio is, Rebel Without a Cause, as you mentioned. Um, What did he do after this? That is the interesting thing about how we're saying like older actresses trying to use these roles to revive their careers. And so Sal is using this to kind of this role to like do something more adult and independent and different and shocking to revive his career. And then after this, it didn't really work out that way in the way it kind of did for Joan Crawford or these other actresses that got their star on the rise again. He basically went back to a lot of TV work. I mean, it's not that he wasn't a working actor or wasn't doing famous things. Again, in Columbo, in uh, Mission Impossible, big, you know, high profile shows, but never had really the success in movies that he did before. Oh, that's super interesting. See, I I didn't really know what Salmanio did after this. Obviously, I know that in the late 70s, like 70, what, 76, 77, he, he dies fairly brutally. He was like stabbed in the heart or stabbed in the chest by a mugger. Um, and that's just awful. He was 37 when he was killed. What other roles or other chances for a a second, a third act in great roles that he could have done? And I think actually that's maybe one of going back to saying like, what is the appeal of these types of movies? And I don't want to speak for you, but as an older man getting older every day, the appeal of seeing someone who quote unquote society has thrown away or is saying is not as important anymore, having a chance, more bites at the apple, having another chance at stardom, maybe getting an Oscar, continuing your career at a high level. That's cool to me. And I just, I eat that up. Well, Geraldine, it's time for me to go water my garden. Yes, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Pop Trash Podcast. If you want more of whatever this is, head over to poptrashmuseum.com for articles, shopping, and past podcast seasons. 
You can also find us on that garbage heap we call social media. And hey, do us a favor, follow and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, when we uncover more pop treasures than you can shake an axe at, thanks for listening. (laughs) It's Shake an Axe, and I helped. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.